Welcome to Social Design Insights, uh, the weekly podcast that brings you the leading voices in social design from the fields of architecture, planning, engineering, and art. We're wrapping up a month-long segment on the question of whether design can prevent disaster, and we've got some fantastic guests here today from Geohazards International. I'm Eric Kessel, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Emiliano Gandolfi. Thank you, Eric, and thank you all for listening to another exciting episode of Social Design Insights. We're here today with Brian Tucker, President of Geohazards International, and with Kenneth Kornberg, Chair of the Board of the Seminole Nonprofit Organization. Since 91, Geohazards International's mission has been to help the world's most invulnerable communities prepare for earthquakes and other geological hazards as tsunamis, landslides, and effects of the climate change. And since then, they have been working with more than 40 communities around the globe. Key to their work is that while developed countries have normative and legal solutions to make buildings more safe, developing countries are easily impacted by natural disasters that create huge damage with great expenses in terms of human lives. The Currystone Design Prize has decided to honor their work especially for their effort to build local capacities to reduce risk, to raise awareness, and develop affordable solutions particularly in the domain of schools and hospitals. What has characterized the work of GHI is the application of a very intelligent approach on how risk reduction can be learned locally and can be disseminated. Central to their work is also the idea that self-reliant communities can reduce death and suffering caused by natural disasters. Brian has been a state geologist. He serves on the board of directors of the Seismological Society of America, and he has won several awards internationally as the MacArthur Fellow. Ken is a founder of the Kornberg Associates, an innovative architectural firm specialized in the design of research and educational facilities, and renowned for their approach on using design to facilitate the production of knowledge. So Brian, to break the ice, I was hoping you could tell us more on how you decided to dedicate your life to the prevention of natural disaster in developing countries. Thank you, Emiliano. I grew up in Southern California and my parents grew up in Southern California, and even my grandparents uh, lived most of their life in Southern California. So I thought I knew what earthquakes were and what earthquakes did to people and their buildings. But after I got my PhD in Southern California, I spent about three years in Central Asia in the mountains of Tajikistan, and I was going back and forth between there and the U.S., So I traveled all throughout. Every time I went back and forth, I took a different route. And I went through Turkey and India and Afghanistan and all the stands in Central Asia. And I saw firsthand how differently we build our houses and how much more vulnerable houses in where earthquakes are in most of the world are built and how, how much more deadly they are. And I, I saw people building adobe homes with adobe walls and adobe roofs, and I knew from talking to them how they were killed in these earthquakes, whereas in Southern California with single-story uh, wood-framed homes, the same size earthquake wasn't killing people. So that really made a big impression on me, and when I was done with that adventure, I decided I would try to do something about it. I guess I would segue into, you know, a question about difference between hard and soft resilience. And I think, 
in the common psychology, you know, people tend to think of resilience as really stiff structures and like large infrastructure and this sort of things. But I think there's there's a degree to your work and a degree to a lot of progressive, you know, resilience actors that focuses on what might be called soft resilience, community education programs, you know, working with local politicians, stuff like that. Could you give us an example of how you implement soft resilience or whatever you want to call it in your own work? So I think one of the distinctive elements of GHI is how they go into a community that we know is at, has very high risk. First, we try to identify an area that we think we can be helpful. But the resilience that we try to develop isn't based so much on a solution as trying to educate that community about what the risks are and then give them different tools to work with. But the community itself actually is responsible to make it happen. And that sort of fusion of the soft way of, of addressing it and the hardware that they have to use it are, are really crucial and inseparable in producing a strategy. So we, we don't go in and redo the buildings. We don't go in and change the, the landscape itself. We try to do it socially by explaining what types of things uh, we think are important and then identifying the, these champions or organizations that can help make it happen. And at the same time, I think talking about soft versus hard reminds me of, a, of an architectural lesson I learned uh, many years ago. Uh, we were designing at a department store that was part of a large mall that you see a lot around, not just the United States, but around the world. And we were instructed to put in the standard exits based on codes. But we also learned from experience that architects or engineers familiar with the construction process and design process in a panic situation look for the exits but everybody else looks for the mall entrance because that's where they came into the building hmm. so the important factor is make sure that even though the mall entrance isn't an acceptable code exit we make it that because we know that's where people are going to run and then we make sure that once you get into the mall itself that the exit strategy is is well worked out. So it's partially it's hardware, but the the social component is really critical. Brian, Ken, this this question about uh, or the story you just told about shopping malls and that sort of thing leads me to another question that I was wanting to ask. I mean, there's certainly those of us that spend our full time career educating about risks, thinking about resilience, dealing with these sorts of projects. But there's a whole community out there globally of architects and engineers who. Uh, you know, are practicing in their, their everyday life and are sometimes constrained by building codes that are out of date or, or perhaps not serious enough about the risks, uh, especially in an era of climate change. What do you see as, you know, the, the, the possibilities for, you know, an everyday architect, engineer, planner to advocate for greater seismic resilience and protection in their own work and their own communities? Uh, this can I think uh, well it's something we we deal with every day but I there, there's several things that the architect can do and I think really has to do I mean in in California we don't get licensed unless we understand the seismic codes so it's second nature to us in, in the work that we do so first of all we have to be aware that we practice it ourselves personally not just professionally because those examples are what people around us see and just doing it passively is is one thing, but actually being active about it is is really critical. And there, in in California, lots of things are are made aware to us as far as 
what kinds of earthquake issues there are. We, we get flyers from our local building departments and fire departments to, to warn us about things we should do. But we have to demonstrate that behavior in every way that, that we work. And I, I remember one, one thing that was important when we went to an area of very high risk and I was looking for a hotel that wasn't in the inundation zone. One is because I, I didn't feel safe, but two, I wanted people to realize this is a serious problem and it's not just something that we talk about. There are other areas that are important to us when we design, such as wayfinding in hospitals, getting people not just from one place to another, but getting them to points of safety. And we see it uh, really in, in every little thing we do. If we don't design something in a safe way, people aren't going to really appreciate it. But if you make a statement in what you do in terms of uh, practice, people will realize that it's different from what they're used to, and then it'll become part of their consciousness as well. There was uh, one aspect that I think it's, it's, uh, it was really interesting in how you developed your impact. And specifically, I remember reading about um, your project in Nepal and how you actually found an entry point in the country of someone that could understand the, the specific sensitivity that you were uh, promoting. I think it's interesting to hear and to understand more how do you actually get to translate that content, that information, that sensitivity to uh, a local community that is probably made of a small village uh, somewhere in the mountains in Nepal. I mean, how do you transcend that information and spread it in a way that it will actually give the impact to uh, those kids that are probably sitting in a school the day of the earthquake? We use different strategies depending on the community and the culture and in particular on the local champion, the local partner that we find. You mentioned Nepal. In that case, we were so fortunate to meet about 25 years ago a man who was also a part of the uh, Nepali Geological Survey but wanted to um, start a nonprofit organization because he felt that in that particular culture and government could be more effective. And he knew that we had a nonprofit that was trying to help spread disaster resilience methodologies. And so we got together and we helped him create this wonderful uh, nonprofit called National Society for Earthquake Technology in Nepal. We, being based here in the U.S., have our good contacts with public policies and structural engineers and earth scientists and sociologists, but we obviously can't do sustained work in developing countries. So in this particular case, the, the way we tried to sustain the work and has have succeeded so far is helping this person create it nonprofit organization that has been working for these 20 years and they have been training masons and uh, raising awareness among the public and retrofitting schools and the impact was very visible in the earthquake of 2015 because all of the schools that they had retrofit over the last 20 years were undamaged and did not collapse, whereas often they would be situated side by side schools that had not been retrofit or had been built 
uh, poorly in the first place and had collapsed. So that's one way we, we try to affect people in the distant villages, mainly by finding a local partner which uh, is dedicated to spreading the techniques that we can introduce them to. Thank you, Brian. I think the communicability of lessons is always one of the harder parts of disaster resilience practice. And I hope that uh, your emphasis on local champions is something that our audience absorbs. We've got to take a quick break. Uh, no one go anywhere. When we get back, we're going to shift to materiality and dig a bit deeper. You're listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel and Emiliano Gandolfi. Thank you for listening to Social Design Insights. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Foundation and the Curry Stone Design Prize. Each week, we strive to bring you the voices of leading practitioners of socially-minded design from all fields. For 10 years, the Curry Stone Design Prize has been seeking, finding, and celebrating emerging practices in socially interested design. For further information on this episode, the show, or social design itself, please visit our website at currystonedesignprize.com. On the website, you'll find all sorts of fun stuff. You can find documentary videos on all of the past winners of the Curry Stone Design Prize. You can find narratives for all Curry Stone Design Prize winners, past and present, as well as for members of the Social Design Circle. Moreover, there's multiple galleries of photos of our winner's work for your use and links for further research. Welcome back to Social Design Insights. We're here for the second part of our interview with Brian Tucker and with Ken Kornberg. They have been sharing with us their 25 years experience on how Geohazards International has worked to reduce the repercussion of natural disasters. Brian and Ken, through the work of the prize, we have been looking closely at local building cultures, and this led me to an obvious concern. A lot of the technologies that we consider earthquake safe are based on using concrete, uh, steel, and materials that are common in developed countries, but not so common in developing countries, especially if we consider remote areas. How do you deal with building resiliency and safety in communities that use bamboo, rammed earth, and other building technologies that are not considered safe? That is the question that GHI faces whenever they go to a community. We, we have to recommend reducing the risk with practical solutions. And so each community, each town, each area has a different uh, uh, set of tools at their disposal. So that's a major part of our work is trying to discover what will be effective in each area. And it's, and it's different for every place we go. Maybe Brian can give some specific examples, but we'll realize what can be, if these are mountain towns, what can be transported by horse or mule, and if it's uh, areas that are you know, cities, what uh, capability the, the, the masons or the different contractors have at their disposal that they can work with. And I think one of the problems that we've had in many of these areas is that construction 20, 30 years ago, when there were trees in an area and there's no more timber or lumber available, those houses actually were relatively safe. But now they're building out of masonry without understanding the major difference working with masonry versus uh, wood construction and without steel. 
So we have to find uh, different ways to address each problem in each community. This reminds me of a humorous but uh, sort of bittersweet story. An employee of ours spent a summer in northern India traveling around trying to find old buildings that existed before the great 1905 uh, Kangra earthquake and that had survived that earthquake. And uh, she couldn't drive in India, so she hired a, a driver, an Indian driver, to be with her that whole summer. And so over the whole summer, he got to know what she was doing, and she was finding and documenting that there, some of the old uh, methods of construction were successful in withstanding that great earthquake. And she would make comments casually as they drove through, quote, modern construction of unreinforced masonry, but with concrete. And these were modern structures. So at the end of the summer, and she was pointing out, she being a structural engineer, how these were deadly constructions and very poorly constructed and designed. And at the end of the summer, she said to him, so when you get married, uh, what kind of house are you going to have? And he said, well, obviously I'm going to buy a modern house. And that's because that is what is popular. And and I would never get a wife to live with me in one of the old houses. So it speaks to the power of advertising and of image. And this has always made me want to launch a uh, advertising campaign where we don't try to convince people to build safely because it's the smart thing to do, but rather to uh, convince them to build safely because that's what is going to attract uh, a mate because (laughs) that is what is going to protect their children. I don't know if that story... uh, resonates to you, but it was so disheartening to our employee to have spent a whole summer documenting that older buildings were safe and the new modern buildings are often poor or more dangerous and that that message didn't get through to the her driver. That actually rings very well for me personally. And I saw a similar thing in Haiti where the pervasive psychology was that, um, you know, my grandfather lived in a mud hut and my father lived in a wood house. And now I want a concrete house because it's modern and it symbolizes wealth and that sort of thing. And of course, a concrete house with no rebar, little rebar is, is not wealthy. It's just the perception of wealth. And it's actually quite dangerous and quite deadly. So I think you're right. There's a sort of program of marketing uh, and maybe it is an advertising campaign. And if you put it together, we'd love to see it. Uh, we'll put it on the show. Um, as a metaphor, I, I think, um, you know, this notion of, of houses uh, and marriage explains the expanding risk problem very well. To wit, what uh, concerns you the most? Um, where globally does the most risk lie now? What concerns us in Geohazards International the most, and, and it's really the reason we created Geohazards International, was not just the gap, but the rapidly growing gap in the risk faced by developing countries and developed countries. For example, in the, over the last 60 years, the population of people who are near large earthquakes 
has grown a little bit in developed countries in Japan and in the U.S., but it has grown by about a factor of 10 in developing <laughs> countries, India, Nepal, Bangladesh. Wow. But the real killer is that the vulnerability of the structures that are being built in Japan, New Zealand, California has reduced. We are building safer buildings now than we were 60 years ago. And in the developing countries, we've replaced the grass shacks with high-rise unreinforced buildings so that the vulnerability has grown by about a factor of 100, we estimate, in those countries. And so over these 60 years, if you combine the population growth and the deteriorating quality of construction, the risk has grown by about a factor of a thousand. And this not only means that people are killed more there than here for an equal-sized earthquake, but their governments are disrupted, their economies are disrupted, people are out of work, they have a a bad prospect uh, future, which of course creates social disruption and and discontent. So I really think that this growing gap is something that should be a, a concern for all of us, not just for humanitarian reasons. And that's what we are trying to address to the, the ability we can as a small nonprofit in California. Well, that's a really terrifying place to close. <laughs> um, but I, I fully agree. And it's an issue really close to my heart. And I think you know, Emiliano and I have brought in the political quite a bit. And as we see the sort of globalization and neoliberal development happening in a lot of developing countries, you know, the the risks are literally built into the buildings and it's just piles and piles and mountains and mountains of risk. Um, so thank you for that, that eloquent synopsis of that. Emiliano, did you want to get another question in? Or are we ready to close? No, I think we're ready to close. I just wanted to add that it, it is true that um, the the growing uh, megalopolis of the developing world are uh, mostly made of uh, self-built structures without a real knowledge on prevention of risks. And I think that this is a summing uh, in, in the level of inequality that we're seeing today in the world. So it's not only the level of poverty, the non-access uh, to services, the non-access to, to a certain level of economy, but also being in a situation in which you're living in a complete uh, hazard and, and risk, which uh, you know creates a, a, an explosive condition of inequality that certainly has to be... Uh, uh, um, addressed uh, um, urgently by international authorities. I think it's also exacerbated by urbanization. And when Brian was saying people are moving more from grass huts to unreinforced concrete building, it's because they're being funneled into cities which are not being properly designed either from a urban design standpoint or from an individual standpoint, individual building standpoint. Well, Ken, uh, thank you very much. And uh, Brian, thank you both for your time. Um, We really hope uh, uh, your work uh, will uh, increase in impact because it's certainly needed. And uh, thank you for taking the time uh, to speak with us. Thank you very much for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you both very much for the inspiration, uh, the insights, and especially the, the practical solutions. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel and Emiliano Gandolfi. We'd like to thank our guests of the week, Brian Tecker and Ken Kornberg of Geohazards International. 
Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Design Prize and the Curry Stone Foundation. For more information on the work of Geohazards International, please visit our website at currystonedesignprize.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all the latest news on social design. We shall be shining. We shall be shining.